0: I hope and trust that you are rejoicing in God's grace today and this week as we go into Passion Week and have already been blessed uh, by our service this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and we are uh, going to consider uh, beginning in verse 28 as we begin uh, this Passion Week. I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to, even as seems to be a theme of our service this morning to behold our God, to gaze upon him and to, to rejoice and to glorify him. And uh, I hope that you, you already have this morning, even as we are spread apart, uh, you're in your living rooms and I have the opportunity here to preach to the uh, praise band and of course to you through this wonderful invention called the internet and all the rest. And uh, of course, this is not what we want to do. But uh, we are are making the best of it, aren't we? And uh, I trust that even in, in these difficult times, God would uh, delight to glorify and to honor Himself. I do hope that you, you take advantage of this this Passion Week. I think it's an incredible opportunity for for you and your family to consider the work of our Lord in this last week of His life. I want to encourage you even to uh, maybe have your gather your family together this week and. And just follow along and and read the events according to Scripture, what Jesus did on Monday. And then on Tuesday, you could, again, uh, consider his work on Tuesday all the way till we celebrate on Easter Sunday that our Lord is risen. What did the angels say? He is not here. He has risen. And so even as we're scattered abroad, we can rejoice in that truth. And I I was even thinking this morning in my time of prayer that... uh, we, we are one week closer to being able to gather together again. And, and, and even beyond that, we are one week closer to being able to stand before our risen King. That he will come, renew this world, and we shall live with him forever. And so we walk into the, in this wilderness land. Not yet into the promised land, but we are getting closer day by day. And therefore, I think we have good reason to be filled with joy today. And I hope and trust you are, even now, as we consider his word from Luke chapter 19. Hear now the word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at that time, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, those who were sent uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are are thankful this morning that we might uh, consider our king, that we might consider this wonderful passage on this Palm Sunday of our Lord's triumphal entry into the holy city, that he would declare to all who had eyes to see it and hearts to receive it that he indeed is the long-awaited Messiah, he indeed is the king of kings, he indeed, as he even referred to himself, he is the Lord the creator of everything. And so will you help us this morning as we are scattered about in northern Virginia and who knows where else? Will you help us, because of the truth of your word, to gaze upon the majesty of our Lord that we might behold his his authority and delight in his wisdom and cherish his mercy as we see him for who he truly is the great King of King. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was during World War II that Lieutenant John Blanchard in the United States Navy went to a library and checked out a book. In that book, he noticed that someone, I'm sure violating the the rules, had written notes in the margin of that book. And as he read through the book, he found the person who had written in the margins their notes even more compelling than the, the book itself. He thought this person was, in, was incredibly wise and insightful. And in fact, he soon found himself attracted to this person that he was getting to know through the notes that they wrote in the margins of the book. He found her name... It was Hollis Maynell and after some investigation Lieutenant Blanchard actually found where in New York City she lived and wrote her a letter. After some anxious days she wrote back. And thus began a correspondence that would take Lieutenant Blanchard throughout World War II. In fact soon the relationship became very personal and and intimate and and he as you could you could imagine began to think okay what is what does miss maynell actually look like he asked if she wouldn't mind sending him a picture she refused he would not get to see what she looked like at least not initially well, when the war was over, they arranged a meeting at Grand Central Station. They said, we're going to meet at a, a certain spot at 7 p.m. And in her last letter, she wrote him, she said, since you don't know what I look like, I'm going to wear a red rose in my lapel. Lieutenant Blanchard got off the train, and uh, he looked towards that spot, and he records the event when he writes, As I looked to the range spot, I noticed A young woman was coming towards me, her figure long and slim, her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears, her eyes were blue as flowers, her lips had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit she was like springtime come alive. I started towards her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick-ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. And so this scene left uh, Lieutenant Blanchard's body paralyzed as his mind caught up with reality, um, leaving his imagination and seeing reality for what it was. And he even wondered for a moment what he should do as this, this stunning woman walked away, leaving uh, Miss Maynell there with her rose. He writes, I was split. I felt choked up by the bitterness of my disappointment. But so deep was the longing for the woman whose spirit had companioned and upheld me during my time of war, that I thought this won't be love or romance, but it could be something so precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. And so with that resolved, he swallowed hard and approached her and said, Hello, I am Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Miss Maynell. I am so glad to meet you. May I take you to dinner? At which point the woman replied, Sir, I have no idea who you are or what this is really about. But a young lady in a green suit who was just standing beside me said that I should wear this red rose. And only if you were to ask me to dinner that I should tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. It's interesting to me on this Palm Sunday to think about how people reacted to Jesus. Of course, as he entered into Jerusalem, many um, were, were elated, many were, as you'll see in a moment, attracted to him as they considered him to be the, the king. And of course, he is the king, and, and as a king, they had expectations as to who he would be and what he would do, and yet they would soon find out, in fact, just a matter of days, that he was not the king that they had expected, that after this initial attraction to him, they they saw him for who he truly was, and quickly rejected him, running after the woman in the green suit, if you will and yet others looked deeper into him, others found a, a beauty in his wisdom and a majesty in his mercy they saw a greatness in his grace, they looked within and saw in Christ a far greater beauty and 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 they they, they were drawn to him, and then even after that. Delighting to know that there's a day coming when he will return, and and that day we won't have to look hard to see his glory, that the veil will be removed and Jesus will reveal himself in all of his majesty and all of his splendor uh, on that great day. The true majesty of the glorious king will be seen on the the day of his coming, and yet on Palm Sunday, I think we're giving a glimpse into it. Of course, Palm Sunday takes place during the Passover celebration. And this Passover was especially, we think, to be large or certainly the great anticipation and expectations as Jesus has been now traveling the countryside doing all of his incredible works. And people begin to think, is he going to show up and what would happen if he did? In fact, if you read back just one chapter earlier in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is in Jericho. And there he, he meets this uh, blind man named Bartimaeus. And uh, Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is walking by and he, he wants to be healed of his blindness. He knows Jesus is this great miracle worker. And so he begins to call out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Of course, what was astonishing was not that he's asking for Jesus to heal him. Many have done that, but what was astonishing is how he referred to Jesus, calling him son of David. This would be the messianic title, a title reserved for the the coming and eternal king. In fact, his very own apostles were somewhat put off by this, and they rebuked him, and they said, be quiet, you can't be calling him that. And yet Bartimaeus, he just continued, and he said, oh, final king, oh, glorious and long-awaited and eternal king, have mercy on me, oh, great promised king. And Jesus stops, and he turns to him and says, yes, yeah, what do you need? And then just after those events, he would change a tax collector's heart. there in Jericho, and there would be this, this, uh, this, this incredible uh, tax rebate. In Jericho, as Zacchaeus starts giving away his money, a stimulus plan there in Jericho because of the transformation of, of Jesus. And then we know in John's gospel, he would go just to one town over there uh, because his dear friend Lazarus had died and, and, and Jesus was too late to heal him when he was sick. And so Jesus shows up four days after Lazarus has been put in the, the tomb. And, and they all say to Jesus, you're too late. But Jesus says, no, I'm never late. And he says, if you will, to just put it in our our common day, he says, undig the grave. They say, well, no, no, he's been there for four days. He says, I don't care, undig the grave. And so they undig the grave, and there the coffin is, and Jesus speaks to the coffin, or to the man within it, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and and the coffin gets kicked open, and out comes the dead man. And Jesus does this in front of hundreds of people. In fact, if you, you read Luke's account, what does he say there in verse 37? He, he refers to that this anticipation had grown because of all the mighty works they have seen. They've seen him heal, heal the, the lame and cleanse the leper and feed the thousands and calm the storm. And, and, and Jesus going about and doing all these miraculous works. I, I think it's helpful to note, by the way, that in our pluralistic age, we like to kind of line up all the world's religious leaders. And so we put Jesus there and we put Muhammad next to him and... And Buddha and Confucius, and we kind of just put them all on the same platform and think, though, these are all great men, and they, they all started their religions, and, and all the rest. But please understand, when we read about the miraculous activity of Jesus, we are reading something that is historically uh, unique, that no one claimed, not, that any of these other religious leaders did any of these miraculous works, that in all of history, that these eyewitness accounts of the miraculous activity of Jesus is unique to him. And and therefore, it caused an incredible stir in Jerusalem. In fact, if you read John's Gospel, he he will write, Now the Passover was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, and they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another, What do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? Well, he will. And, and, and as he approaches Jerusalem, there is electricity in the air. This place is charged. The, the prince is coming home. The, the Messiah approaches the holy city. The king is coming to take the throne. And this is the main thrust of this passage that we need to understand, that the Palm Sunday story is the revelation of Jesus as king. That's what all the waving the palm branches around and throwing the cloaks around and shouting the praise, this is what they did for a king when they would return from, from victory, uh, uh, from battle, a triumphant king coming home. And what's, what's totally unique at this point in Jesus' life is that he allows it. In fact, it seems to me that he's even arranging it. And what's surprising is because up to this point, whenever Jesus does a miraculous work or works in someone's life, he always says, now don't tell anybody. Let's keep this between us. Yes, you're right in saying, uh, I am this, but don't tell anybody. Yes, I did this, but don't don't tell anybody. He's trying to keep the lid on on the the anticipation and a lid on on the fervor that Jesus is creating. And yet, now on Palm Sunday, something's changed. Something is utterly unique. He is creating a public display. He is, for the first time, welcoming the attention, inviting it as he has this royal entrance into Jerusalem where Jesus finally and, and more, uh, more clearly publicly unveils his true identity, that he is indeed the king of kings. And so that's our goal for this morning, is that we would see Christ as king, and we would delight in him as king, and we would more fully Uh, submit to him in joy as king and that we would celebrate the freedom that we have in that Christ is king over us. My friends, you cannot understand Jesus unless you understand him as king. And so consider first of all that this story tells us that Jesus is the promised king. Note verse 28. And when they had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage, Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. I want you to note that Jesus is is putting these events together. Jesus Jesus knows where this. This donkey is, he, he knows that it's tied up, he knows what they're supposed to say when someone objects to them taking it. He, he doesn't say, well, I think I saw a donkey over there, or the word is that someone has a, a, an animal over there, or it might be tied, or God willing, this is how you'll find it out. He just lays it out very emphatically, this is what will happen, this is what you will find, this is what you say when you do and you know, uh, so they, they go about doing what Jesus called them to do. Verse 32 tells us, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Just as Jesus uh, explained. And you see what's happening is that Jesus is arranging his entry into Jerusalem. He is orchestrating All these events, he is making sure that this is a uh, a big public event. And so when he rides into Jerusalem, and everybody comes out in the streets, and the thousands of people are shouting and waving their branches and all the rest, he's not thinking, "Oh, is this for me?" Right? Wow! I'm I'm speechless. I, I had no idea. No, he is making sure this will happen. And he's doing so, I think, for two reasons. One is he is seeking to bring about conflict with the religious and civil leaders. A conflict which we'll consider this Friday in our Good Friday service. But the other reason he's doing this is to declare himself to be the promised Messiah, or as the biblical language tells, uh, the promised king, or the, the Messiah, as the Bible tells us. In fact, uh, we, we know that the animal that he's riding on from the other Gospels is a donkey's colt. That's important because 500 years uh, before this event, the people of Israel returned from exile in Babylon back to Israel, and there they rebuilt the temple, and there they reinstituted the priesthood, and, th- and there God raised up for them prophets, but there was one thing missing a king. And so God raised up this prophet Zechariah and said, don't worry, the king is coming. The king who the prophets have been promising for hundreds of years is coming. The Messiah is coming and he says, you want to know how you'll know. Well, we, we read in Zechariah 9, nine Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, fall, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus is putting this all together, you see he is unequivocally identifying himself as the promised Messiah, as the coming king. In fact, do you note how Zechariah tells us not just what would happen, but how we should respond to what is happening? What does he say? Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, he says. And I know I, I periodically ask you, when is the last time you have shouted in triumph, not at a sporting event? so he says, shout aloud. We need times of joyful shouting. Now you're in your living room. I can't hear you. So go ahead and shout. Christ is king. He has come. And the prophet tells his people should be shouting aloud. We should be uh, being full of joy. This is the goal of Christ. Do you understand that? The the joy in his people is not simply some side effect that Jesus brings. This is why he has come. Not only to remove from us the misery of our sin, our bondage into self-focus and slavery. He has come to replace that with joy in his presence. With a delight in him, he has come to make us leap for joy. And I think it is oh so helpful in the day in which we are living in a worldwide pandemic to every once in a while, or more often than not, I perhaps perhaps should say, is to not simply be following the CDC guidelines and reading the latest tweets and looking at the latest numbers. All those are important to do. But we must lift our gaze off our circumstances and gaze upon King Jesus. Do you not think that these people in Jesus' day had problems too? In fact, I would suggest that for some of them, the issues they dealt with on a day-to-day basis are even more significant than the problems that many of us are facing even in the midst of this pandemic. And yet they came out and and they worshiped Christ. And in doing so, it made their problems seem small. It put them in perspective. And you and I need to do this as well. We need to put the issues all around us in perspective that we have a Messiah We have a king, and and you are made, by the way, for a king. God has created you. You need a king. You're designed for a king. In fact, you're made for this king. This is why we have uh, this celebrity culture. We create our own royalty because we're made for it. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis said long ago. When men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For our nature will be served. Deny it food, it will gobble poison. So what Lewis is explaining is we don't have kings, right? If we don't, we create them. We create royalty, athletes and actors. Why? Why? People, people that we want to crown, people that we want to gaze upon, people that we, 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 we fill our hearts with admiration. Why do we do this? Because, oh, it's because God has made us to hunger for a king. We must have royalty. We must have a king. We're made for it. And you can deny it, right? As many try to, but, but Lewis, I think, is right. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison, like pop stars and politicians, right? You, you, you will have a king. And Jesus is the king which you seek. Jesus is the one for which you are made. Your life uh, begins to work when you submit yourself to King Jesus, for he is the promised king. Secondly, you see, he is the humble king, as you note in verse 35. What do we read? Uh, And they brought it, that is the the donkey's colt, to Jesus, and throwing uh, their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. I, 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 I can only imagine the conversation that Jesus must have had with the apostles as he's just a couple miles out of Jerusalem. He says, okay, we're going into Jerusalem, but you know, I don't think I'm going to walk the last two miles. I, I'm thinking I'm going to ride in. And they must have been just un- over-the-top excited. I think, finally, finally, because we've seen you feed the thousands and walk on water and calm the storm and cast out demons. And, right, and, and now, finally, you know, we're, we're getting this revolution started. And finally, we're going to start knocking some Roman heads together. Finally, you know, it, it's go time. And Jesus says, okay, boys, I'm riding in. And they're thinking, all right, let's do it. And then he says, okay, go get me a baby donkey. Right? And they must have thought, what? A baby donkey? Right? That's not how you win elections. That's not how you... Inspire people hey, I, a handful of years ago, from what I understand there was a royal wedding over in England um, some Some prince got married to some lady I, I don't I think it's Prince Larry or something like that i 'm an American so i didn 't <laughs> watch it um, but uh, they got married, and I'm sure it was a big to-do, and uh, so I, I'm just imagining, and you'll write me an email if I'm wrong, I'm sure, that, that there was some type of horse-drawn carriage through the, through the streets of London, right? And, and all the people came out to see the, the prince and the princess, and it was all wonderful and regal and, and wonderful. But just imagine for a moment, instead of a horse-drawn carriage, uh, they, they decided to drive a, a Pontiac. Okay, and not even a nice Pontiac, like a, just an old, beat-up, rusted Pontiac, and, and there the prince and princess are driving through London in, in this old, uh, old, old, and if you have a Pontiac, I'm sorry, I'm sure it's a fine car, um, but, you know, it's, it's not a horse-drawn carriage, I think we would agree. And so you could imagine the BBC saying, okay, and, and the parade is about to start, and, and now the prince and princess are getting in their Pontiac, and, and you would be thinking, what? That, that doesn't sound right. That seems weird to me. And it would be weird, and I think in some ways it was weird for Jesus to, to ride this baby donkey. This is not what they expected. This is not what royalty does. It was Hans Christian Andersen, who who in 1835 wrote his his little tale, The Princess and the Pea, and when a stranger shows up in the middle of the night at a castle, a stormy night, and she claims to be a princess, and they're not sure, so they put her to the test, and they make her sleep on a bed with 20 mattresses stacked high, and underneath the bottom mattress is a single pea. For they know if she's truly a princess, she'll be so disturbed by the lump caused by that pea because she has lived such a pampered life that 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 would declare that she's a princess. You see, we have expectations for our royalty. We have expectations for our king. And yet what we see here is Jesus is not the king we were expecting. In fact, you notice in Zechariah, the, the passage that that we've already considered the promise of, of this event 500 years before it happened. Zacharias says, for our king is coming to you. Listen to what he says. Righteous and having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey. And I, I wonder if you could hear the paradox there. He, the king is righteous. He is, he is bringing salvation. He is coming to save in great power and might. And yet at the same time, he's humbled. He, he rides a donkey. He's mighty and authoritative, and yet he's gentle and humble. And so what Jesus is declaring, he says, yes, I am the king, but I'm a different kind of king. I'm a humble king. And I wonder if you've encountered the humility of Jesus. I think to the meek, Jesus rides into our lives, does he not? Uh, Just as he rode into Jerusalem uh, with gentleness and tenderness and humility. Uh, To the proud, you won't find Jesus uh, to be gentle. He, he comes to breaks us. Uh, to, the, to the stubborn, Jesus, that encounter with Jesus be very traumatic. And yet, to the lowly, Jesus has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest. For your souls, I wonder if you have found rest in Christ. I wonder if you are delighting in the rest that Jesus offers you even now in the midst of worldwide crisis. Do you know that rest? That's what the humble king has come to offer us. Have you experienced that? Have you, are, are, are you rejoicing in his love? Are you, are you delighting in his compassion? Are, are you um, appreciating his patience with you? I I think even during these times when we can't gather together, you're going to have to fight harder for that. But it's worth it. You're you're going to have to fight harder to draw close to Jesus during this time. But I'm telling you, it 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 will carry you through these days. It will fill your heart with the joy and delight that you need to be with him and to walk with him, this great, humble king that comes to us in gentleness. I hope you've experienced that. Christians, therefore, if we have experienced the humility of Jesus, are to be humble people. We're not to be touchy people. To to be a Christian is to not be easily offended because our God is so long-suffering with us. We are do we delight to be long-suffering with other people? It's not to be an overly sensitive person. We We are to be a humble people because Christ has been humble with us. He is humble and gentle as you see, he comes. But what's interesting is he's not at all modest. Once again, another paradox is we see thirdly, Jesus is the praiseworthy king. Again, in verse 35, we see that, and they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, and they sat, uh, and they set Jesus on it. And so, evidently, in their minds, it's unfitting for him to come in without a saddle, so they throw their cloaks on the the colt to create one, and, and soon others are following their example as they begin to throw their Cloaks in front of Jesus, as you see in verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks out on the, the road. And so they are uh, creating this this uh, royal treatment for Jesus, if you will. They're, they are uh, spreading out of the red carpet treatment. We know in other Gospels that they would cut down palm branches and they would lay them before him. And, and in fact, soon the crowds begin to swell as the thousands of people came out. As you see in verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Right? He's not even coming up into Jerusalem yet. Uh, the whole multitude of his disciples and so there are multitudes of people who are, who are coming out to Christ, who are, are cheering him and celebrating him. And I wonder what, what kind of euphoria must have been that, to be there on the day when the prophet's proclamation actually came true. I mean, they have, this, this has been promised 500 years ago, uh, almost twice as long as our country has been around. Could you imagine? A promise for centuries. And centuries, half a millennia, actually coming true in your day. What would it have been like to be in Jerusalem on the day in which the king of kings rode into the holy city amidst such honor? In fact, the honor was not simply a sacrifice code or a cut down palm branches. They praised him with their mouths. We know from the other gospels they shouted, Hosanna, which means save us, son of David, which is, of course, the messianic title. Uh, the great eternal Messiah who would come. But according to Luke's gospel, Luke adds some more of their praise. Read on in verse 37. And they begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, that's not some random praise. It's not like shouting amen or hallelujah as we might do in a, in a church service. They are actually quoting from Psalm 118, which is a song uh, written a thousand years ago in honor of the coming Messiah. And it was a song reserved for that Messiah, the Messiah who would come to fix the world. And, and, and so they begin to praise him as this coming Messiah. And what we see is that that Christians, or the people of God, are not simply people who believe in Jesus. They're showing us that we are people who actually more than just agree with the facts of Jesus. We are people who praise Jesus. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who delights to sing to him as the Bible commands, delights to pray to him, delights to, to confess their sin to him that they might receive grace and mercy, delights to, to follow after him and to gaze upon him. And my hope and prayer, even in these difficult times, that you would not fail and falter in offering Jesus the worship that is due his name. Just because you're stuck at home does not mean Christ is any less worthy of your adoration, of your praise and your worship. And so Christian, fight harder to get your mind and your heart in line with the realities that we know is true, that Jesus is our praiseworthy king and he longs for your worship. And he longs for your adoration and he longs for your joyful obedience and he longs for your passionate submission and he longs for you to find your peace and joy in his presence. That's what a Christian is. That we would think about Christ and daydream about Him and glorify Him and ascribe to Him majesty and might and mercy. And that we would spend our days thinking about what He has done and what He is doing in us right now and what He has promised to do. That you and I would join the parade. That we would worship our King because He is worthy of it and He will not be refused it. As you see, fourthly, Jesus is the divine king. The divine king. Note this extraordinary interchange in verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You could imagine the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they didn't like this messianic praise being offered to Jesus. I can imagine them running around trying to silence people, be quiet, stop saying these things. And when they could not, they finally come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, do you know what they're saying? Do you hear them? They're praising you as the great eternal Messiah that is, come, is to come. Why don't you stop them? Do you hear what they are saying? Notice Christ's response in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And I just think that's that is such a powerful statement that worth spending some time thinking about and considering this week. And Jesus says, "Listen, if these people don't worship me, right? If they stop their praise, the universe will fill in for their silence." The very rocks will cry out. It's almost like maybe I, I, I watched too many children's movies, but like the, the, the very rocks opening their mouths and being able to to, to sing and, and praise Jesus. In other words, what he's telling us is he's saying, I, I'm going to be praised one way or another. And if the people won't do it, then the creation will. Now, why I find, I mean, I think this is an extraordinary statement in so many ways, but usually, uh, around this time of year, you turn on the television and the experts emerge, right? And they, they go off to tell you, it's like, well, we know that the Christians say Jesus is is God and and uh, the Son of God, but he never really said that. And they'll tell you that uh, Jesus, uh, he's a friend and he's a very wise man and he's a great moral example to you and, and we can learn a lot from Jesus, but he never claimed to be divine. Well, if that's true... I. What, what then is he saying here? What else is he, is he saying that if if they stop praising me, the rocks will start praising me? What, what moral man says something like that? No, he's claiming to be God himself, which is, of course, why they killed him just six days later. Not because he's a wise man and a moral example. They killed him for the crime of blasphemy because he continually claimed to be God in flesh. You see, what, what's, uh, what's so fascinating about the Lord is that He is He is, of course, very humble, as we've seen, but He's not at all modest. He's both humble and and, and, and not modest. With with other people, of course, he's very loving and and, and tender and serving, but with regard to himself, um, there's not much modesty there. He's, he will not slip into Jerusalem. He, he will not come in at night with a hood over his head. He is forcing the issue. He is, he is saying, listen, you need to make a choice with me. You, you, either, you either praise me or you oppose me. Those are the options open to us. There is no other option. You can crown me or you can kill me. And, and in fact, everyone, if you read the Gospels, everyone who ever met Jesus really lines up in one of those two categories. They either adored him or they hated him. But no one found him boring. No one yawned in the presence of Jesus. No one said, oh, he's a good example for me to follow. No one simply admired him. They were either an adoration of him or fear and hatred of him. And I think that's the only option available to us, too. If you consider his claims, for instance, here in verse 40, the rocks will worship me, they'll praise me. Well, you you have a couple options. You can either despise him as some lunatic or liar, or you can surrender to him as the Lord that he claims to be. And so many people, I think they want to come to Jesus, and they want, well, I want a little inspiration, and I want some help in times of trouble, and I, I want some comfort, and maybe I want a servant. And And Jesus, I think, in some sense says, I'll be all that to you. But first you must surrender to me. You must yield your life to me. I demand total allegiance. I demand complete surrender. You you either make Jesus your king or you despise Jesus, but He simply cannot be admired by you. The rocks will cry out in my praise, he says. As we see lastly, that Jesus is the redeeming king. The redeeming king. Is it not fascinating if you look back up in verse 30 that Jesus says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt. And then he adds this phrase, On which no one has ever sat. And so Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, but he's going to ride in on a a baby donkey that not, not only has not been ridden, it hasn't even been sat upon. Now, I'm, of course, not, I'm not a donkey expert or a horse expert, um, but from what I understand, when you get on a, an animal like this that has never be, been written, ridden, what do they do? I mean, do they, they, they turn their head back and say, well, where to? Right? Well, this is fun, thank you for sitting on me, and, and off we go. Uh, no, they freak out. And they buck, and, and, they, and they're confused, and they don't know how to be guided, and, and they try to throw you off, right? Right. A horse, we, this is what we say, a horse has to be broken before it can be ridden. And yet Jesus says, I want to go get on an unridden colt. By the way, that's not in the prophecy in Zechariah. This is something that Jesus is adding. I want to get on a colt that no one has ever ridden, and then by the way, I want to ride it through a screaming crowd. And everybody's waving palm branches and they're throwing their garments all over the place and shouting and running and I'm going to ride this colt all the way through it. And as we see, the one who can speak to the storm and comment can get upon the colt and comment as well. It has been asked, why are animals afraid of humans? Why do they need to be broken? Some have suggested it is because they are smart. George Whitefield's some 200 years ago said, uh, do you know why when you get near animals, they bark and run away? Because they know you have a quarrel with their master. Well, of course, Jesus has no quarrel with their master. For he is. And so he gets on the colt and has no need to break it. As Tim Keller puts it, he heals it of its fear. Things become what they should be under his hand. And so a young, unridden colt is now fearless in the crowd when Jesus is in the saddle. Reminding us, perhaps, of the elsewhere in the prophecies that we hold so dear, that the wolf shall lie with the lamb, and the calf and the lion, and a little child shall lead them. This is where the day we're going into, and Jesus is simply showing us a glimpse of it. See, Jesus is not simply coming into this world to forgive us, and take us into heaven. He's coming to heal the world. And, and I think in a day of worldwide pandemic. That's so important for us to remember. When we rebelled against the king. We broke the world. And all of us have rebelled against God. All of us have gone our own way. All of us, we know. If you know your own heart in any way, you know you have sinned against uh, what is right. You have not done what is true. You have not honored the one who has made you as you should. We have all have sinned against him and the world broke. And therefore, what, this is why we have sin. This is why we have evil. This is why we have abuse and injustice and divorce and all the rest. is because uh, we, we are broken. We're broken. And it's why the world has earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and pandemics, because the world is broken. And yet when the king returns, the world will finally be what it is supposed to be. As Isaiah said long ago, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Of course, that's a promise for a coming redemption when Christ returns. But he offers us a redemption even now. Namely, he offers us peace with God. You see, kings would sometimes ride donkeys, but they didn't, would not ride them into war. They would ride them when they would come and proclaim peace. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem not, not as a, a triumphant king leading the captives behind him through the streets. He instead comes to make peace by freeing the captives. The peace namely between us And a holy and righteous God. We who have sinned against him. We who by nature have an enmity towards him and he towards us. Christ has come to bring us together to what the Bible calls to reconcile us to this righteous God. In fact, do you remember what they, they praised him with in verse 38? They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In fact, that might make you think of how Luke began his gospel. When Jesus was born, there were those worshiping him then, namely the angels. And they came and sang, did they not glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And now at the end of his life, the men and the women and the children of Jerusalem, they they begin to join that angelic praise as they also cry out, let there be peace. And I'll tell you this morning, based upon the authority of God's word, I have no greater news than this. That if you yield your life to Jesus Christ, you will have peace with a holy God. That he will end the warfare, he will reconcile you to, that there will be peace. And we know that Jesus alone can accomplish this. Because it would be six days after this event when they discover that Jesus is not there to bring about a political liberation. That Jesus has not come to change simply their circumstances, but is far more uh, concerned with changing them. Taking out their hearts of stone and giving them a heart of flesh and forgiving their sins and setting them free from their bondage to transgression and iniquity. Well, they say that's not the Messiah we want. And so he who rides into Jerusalem on Sunday in the midst of messianic praise is forced outside Jerusalem on Friday to die as a blasphemous imposter. And I think what a strange coronation that Friday was. Thorns for a crown, a cross for a throne, and a sign above his head that read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And while he hung upon that cross, no one was praising him then. The Pharisees got what they want. The worship was silent as he died for sin and sinners. And yet, what was it that he said there in verse 40? If these remain silent, the very rocks will shout. We read on the occasion of his death, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and the earth shook and the rocks were split. You see the stones crack and the ground quakes at the death of their creator as they pay tribute to the work of redemption that he is accomplishing through his crucifixion when everyone else is silent. I tell you, Jesus laid down his life so that you might be reconciled with God. That you might be saved from the coming judgment. You who have rebelled against God might be, have peace with him as Jesus went to the cross and he would receive the wrath of God upon himself as our substitute for all who trust in him. That you who have sinned, and are deserving of of judgment from a holy God, Jesus would say, I will take your place if you will trust in me, if you will submit your life to me, if you will bow your knee to me as king. I hope you have. If you have not, I offer you the grace and mercy of God this very day, that if you would place your faith in Jesus Christ and receive him, I tell you, you are made for him. You will find in him everything that you are seeking for, everything you long for. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, as we remember these events, as we begin to celebrate the week of our Lord's suffering, will you not today and this week going forward rejoice in Jesus? find your delight in your King. Will you not even join the praise, even there in your, your living room, even in the silent of your heart, will you not even shout from within you, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have a King. We are so thankful for the perfect King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk through these difficult days and these troubling times, Father, help us not lose sight that our King reigns and that in His hand He has brought us both forgiveness and freedom and that therefore He is worthy of all of our praise, all of our love, And all of our joyful submission. Help us, Father, to more fully yield our lives to King Jesus. And for those who might be watching who do not know him as king, will you not uh, begin to work in their hearts that they too can find reconciliation with you, redemption from their sin, if they would yield their life to Jesus. That they would find the king that they are made for. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.